Welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. This is the final lesson in a four-week Wednesday night class series called God's Purpose for Sex and Marriage. The content in this lesson is intended for mature audiences. Parental discretion is advised. This is our uh, fourth and final week in talking about God's purpose for sex. We took three weeks to kind of go through a history of, of sex and talk about different influences on where we are today culturally. I know that's been a long road for us to do that, but it, it takes that kind of awareness for us to sort of expand our thinking about why is it that we think the way that we do and why is it that the church is silent um, in a lot of ways. Not everybody in the church is silent, but in a lot of ways we have, have kind of experienced silence from the church in these areas, okay? So... Let's talk just a minute. Um, tonight we're going we're gonna to focus in on what is, what is it that God intended for us within marriage for sex, okay? But I want to I step back and just kind of talk about the cultural view of sex. This would be like um, what society has to say about it at this point. So if you think about what we talked about last week, with Kinsey and sort of his influence on uh, the academic world and how that started to shape um, education within schools and the ideas of sex expanded from there. You also need to recognize that simultaneously in, in the religious communities, we, we see a shift away from um, this idea that uh, that God is uh, in control, that God is the creator, and more to an evolutionary perspective, right? People are starting to accept, especially in the academic communities, uh, evolution is the thing. And maybe this whole God thing is kind of made up. And, you know, so at this point in our history, people are starting to feel around for a moral ethic, like, why do we hold to the morality that we do if we don't believe in God as we've been taught, the Judeo-Christian ethics that we've been given? So those started to be abandoned, and guys like Keeney, or, uh, not Keeney, Kinsey, when he enters into the picture, he offers an alternative explanation, one that comes from nature, right? So if we see it happening in the animal kingdom, then it should be okay uh, within humanity. So if you see homosexual practices happen in the animal kingdom, which they do, then it should be acceptable for that to happen in humanity. If you see adult animals having sex with, ch- with, with young animals, then, it should, then, then pedophilia should be okay, right? It should be okay for adults to have sex with children. So now the moral standard moves away from Judeo-Christian ethics and towards a humanistic morality based in what we see in nature. Okay, So now fast forward to where we are today in our culture. What are some of the values that our culture holds on to? What would you say our culture says this is the purpose for sex. This is what we're looking for. This is not a rhetorical question. I'm asking that of you. Feels good, do it. Right. If it feels good, if it pleases you. So pleasure is is number one, right? Okay, so we're seeking pleasure. The idea of what will make sex the most erotic experience with the best orgasm to end with. That's kind of the ideal. Okay? So, the purpose is, if it's pleasure, then the purpose for sex is to seek orgasm. I just want to show y'all these real quick. It's funny, I just, all I did was do a Google search of of Vogue magazine covers. Okay? Okay? These were the first three that popped up. I don't, can y'all read it? Okay, this says right here, 
seven minutes to a better body. Okay? Jennifer Lawrence, girl on fire, gifted, unguarded, and gorgeous. This one right here. Before Caitlin, a remarkable movie about a transgender pioneer. Another one. Kendall Jenner, Through the Looking Glass. Gigi Hadid's Romantic Escape. Fairy Tale Evenings. Tiaras for a day. Okay? That's, that's just wrought with physical sexuality. Okay? Here's 17. This is what... Uh, 17 is targeted towards teenagers. Get your hottest body. Right here, Cosmopolitan. I couldn't even put some of the pictures from Cosmopolitan up here for fear that people would like walk out of class, okay? But look at this. 21 mind-blowing sex moves that you've never tried before. Introducing the Brazilian sweet treat. That sounds enticing. (laughs) The seven best orgasm tricks in the world. Right here. They've got it for you. In Cosmopolitan. This is actually the sexy issue. Right there, that's what that says. It's all over. And these are not just magazines that you have to go searching for. They're sitting right there as you're waiting to check out at Kroger. Right? Like, I've got my kids, my three kids there with me, and I'm like trying to block, you know, so they can't see these magazines. And now that my kids can read, they're like, what what is a what is an orgasm dad you know i'm like i'm not ready to go there yet (laughs) this is some just some statistics from um uh, on pornography 30 percent of all the web traffic on the internet is dedicated to porn 30 percent of the web traffic let that set in. 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. Two-thirds of men admit to watching porn compared to a third of women. This little thing says, fess up, ladies. Like, it's happening more often than that. And there is, there is actually uh, a trend showing an increased usage of pornography among women. 70% of these men are between the ages of 18 and 24. 85% of people who watch porn watch between the hours of 7 p.m. and 3 a.m. I don't think that's very surprising. This is, these are statistics of, uh, that were taken of self-identified Christian men. Pornography viewing several times a day, 7%, as opposed to non-Christian men, 3%. At least once a day, 12% Christian, 10% non-Christian. And the list goes on. You're saying that there's a larger number of Christian men looking than than non-Christian? Not in every column, but in some of them there are. Statistically, though, there is no significant difference between Christian men and non-Christian men on who's viewing pornography. Okay, we could go on with this. I don't have a lot of time to cover pornography in general, but this, these are examples of how our culture is promoting, I would say, a view of sex that's driving this idea of pleasure. And I think that was the answer that the world gave. Because, because what, what's happening is, like out of the Victorian era and all, you know, all the stuff that we've talked about so far, you have people saying, my body is saying something different to me about sexuality than what I hear the messages in my culture saying, right? Like, I desire this. And so... What's, what's the, the conclusion, the natural conclusion that people will come to? 
it must be okay. Yeah, it's it must be okay. And if the answer that I hear somewhere else is, well, it's about pleasure, then that makes sense because it sure does feel good, right? Why? I mean, why would anybody take it beyond that logical conclusion? So that's where things kind of settle in. And that is the answer to what are we doing sexually? We're pursuing eroticism. And that's what guys like Kinsey, that's why their influence is such a, is such a big deal. And, and the pornography industry just drives that idea, even among Christian and non-Christian people alike. Okay? So we end up seeing this shift towards the idea that deviance is the norm. Now you're watching this happen right in front of you as the LGBT community, LGBTQ community continues to add letters. We're continuing to see more and more accepted deviance to sexuality. Okay. So when you look at um, 50 Shades of Grey. I mean, there was this huge response to 50 Shades of Grey. Why is that? I mean, we're talking about people who are are like like causing pain and suffering during sex. And people can't wait to watch it or read the book. Is that not just like mind-blowing? And yet it's very acceptable. I've even heard, you know, people within the Christian community be like, well, you know, it's like my guilty pleasure, you know. Because it's somewhat taboo to a lot of people. So they find it to be interesting to imagine that that could be something that other people might enjoy. Yeah, and, and I would say all m- many of the things that have been considered taboo are moving into the mainstream. And that's what we're seeing, this cultural shift, because when you're talking about erotic pleasure, it, it always has to become more and more. That's why pornography is so addictive, because you need more of it. You need different types of it. You need it to arouse you differently in order for it to continue to work. So people become consumed with it. So when you think about how this hunger for more variety, it's like better looking bodies, you know, hotter, all of that equals what? Better sex, right? The better your body, the better your sex is going to be. That's the message that we get. Um, You know, size, penis size is something that has been, you know, discussed quite a bit. And it's, it's always been said, you know, since I can remember, the size of your penis matters. It matters because, you know, the, the bigger your penis is, the more pleasure you can give your partner, right? Well, that's, it's so false because there is, um, the, the, the nerves in the vagina are just on the outer third. Like once you move past that, it doesn't, there's no better feeling anymore. And yet our culture takes this false idea and it's about more enhanced pleasure, right? So penis size matters. Large breasts and a tiny waist, that's the thing. That's going to make sex better, right? It's more erotic. It's more pleasurable. Is that true? No. It has nothing to do with the pleasure that you get out of sex with your partner. But what these expectations do and what pornography does and what the idea of eroticism does, they set this expectation for the the partner to be the fantasy. The problem is the partner can never be the fantasy. It isn't possible. In pornography, we're talking about actresses and actors. They're acting the fantasy out. They're not really the fantasy. So consuming that is just reinforcing and feeding this need for the other person to fit the fantasy mold, which is an impossibility. So eroticism keeps progressing forward and it, and it creates more and more dissatisfaction. That's ultimately what it leaves 
couples with is a dissatisfied sex life. You're not who I want you to be in the bedroom. I want you to be hotter. I want you to be, I want you to hang from the chandeliers. I want you to, you know, bend over backwards. I don't know. I mean, whatever, whatever the, the guilty desire is, that's what the fantasy says. This is going to make sex so erotic. It's going to be great. And it's never fulfilled. Kevin, I think on the one hand, they're finally reaching the point where let's say the wife says, I'm not enough, okay, which is crippling. Being flipped on the other side, the man says, I'm not good enough. You know, so it is a wounding on both sides of the bed. That's right. And it's like, so the expectation, you know, might be, um, you know, if you're good enough in the bedroom, then you're going to have like, you know, the, the, the woman will have like three orgasms, right? Well, what happens if she doesn't even have one? Does that mean that it wasn't good? Does it mean that the husband didn't perform like he was supposed to? Well, that is what it would mean if it were about orgasm. Here's the thing, though. The world says it's about erotic pleasure. It's about orgasm. But orgasm is just a benefit of sex. It's not the purpose. And sometimes that benefit is experienced and sometimes it's not. But it's not the purpose. It's not why two people come together. And that's where we've missed the mark. You've even seen the book Intended for Pleasure, I'm sure. That's a Christian book that's been, you know, implemented. It's about how to have better sex with your spouse and all of that. And I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to people looking at different ways to engage one another in the bedroom. But when we say things like intended for pleasure, it goes back to how we perform in the bedroom. And that's not why God gave us sex. To, to go in and, and think that, we've got to perform at this high level because it does. It leaves both people feeling defeated. So, what is, if, if orgasm is the benefit, what's the purpose? My take is the purpose is oneness. So, let's just take a second when you think about like, um, you know, like eating a steak, you go out and you eat. You, why do you order a steak? You order a steak because, you know, it's, it's going to fill you up, right? The benefit is that it tastes really dang good, especially if you go to, where did we go the other night? The steakhouse. Stony River. You go to Stony River and you get one of their steaks. Yeah. But that's the benefit. The taste is the benefit, right? The purpose is to be filled, is to sustain yourself with food, okay? The same is true for sex. So I, I, my take is that our two greatest longings as people are to know another person and to be known by another person. I think when we experience that, then we experience true intimacy. If you go to the bedroom expecting performance, you cannot know the other person. You will only be focused on yourself. To know the other person is to let go of expectations of yourself and them. Okay? So, there, we can settle for just knowing another person but not being known. Right? Right? But that, that's selfishness on our part. We don't want to appear weak, maybe. We don't want to be, let somebody else into the, the difficulties in who we are. Or maybe we just don't know how to communicate what we want because we're afraid that that's weak. Right? But the purpose is to, to know another and to be known by somebody else. Okay? So... I think logic alone 
would tell us that the sole purpose of sex is not just procreation, okay? That probably doesn't have to be stated in this room, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you why logic would tell us that. Because people can still enjoy sex long after they can have babies. We don't lose the ability to enjoy it after that. Not only that, but we have the ability to enjoy it. Now, if you take an evolutionary perspective, that would make sense on, in, from the perspective of survival, right? Like, human beings evolved to enjoy sex in, for procreation so that it would keep them coming back to procreate. But we don't, we're, we're, we don't believe in evolution from that perspective, right? We believe that God created us for a purpose. He created a husband and wife to come together and to become one. So it isn't just about procreation. It has to be about something more. Okay, open up, if you have your Bibles, um, open up to Genesis 2, 23 through 24. Okay, so this is after God has noticed that Adam uh, is um, needs a suitable helper, right? And he has put him into a deep sleep. He took out his rib, and this is what Adam says. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The implications here, uh, from this comes from my, uh, my scholarly friends in the theological side at Harding, um, that the implication is like this naked and unashamed, they're childlike. It's a reference to them being childlike. They're just enjoying life, right? They're, they're un tethered to any pain and they're unhindered by their own shame because there is none okay but not only that if you look at what the scripture tells us it doesn't say anything about procreation here it says that the that it was for this reason that the reason that they come back together is because that the woman was created from the man and so to become to to be united is to come back together that is the purpose of reuniting, is to be back together. This is the biblical description of and our first look at why people have sex. Now later, God will say, be fruitful and multiply. So we know it's not only about being one, it is about pre- procreation as well. But it is initially about the two becoming one flesh. Okay? So when you look at Genesis 2 and they're naked and unashamed, then you turn over to Genesis 3. What happens? I'm not going to read it because we don't have time. What happens in Genesis 3? Sin. It's the fall. That's right. So... So what happens is uh, Satan comes up, well, the serpent in the story, who's the antagonist, right, comes up and says to Eve, hey, what's up? What you doing? She's like, just chilling. And the serpent's like, "Uh, why don't you eat this fruit? And the woman's like, Eve's like, well, God said that if we eat this fruit, then we'll die. Which, isn't, which is actually not what God told Adam initially. Um, but she says that, that we'll die. And the serpent's like, you are not going to die. You're going to be fine. And so what follows is 
the 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 biblical account says that she notices that the fruit is pleasing to the eye that it's good for gaining wisdom and it says she reaches and she grasps for the fruit so the implications here are that there's the lust of the flesh right she notices that it's pleasing to the eye that it's good for gaining wisdom. She's hungry to get wisdom that she's supposed to be given by God, not of her own accord. And she grasps for it. So she takes control out of God's hands and puts it in her hand. And this is what causes the fall. That's sin. What is that? What are those three things? We have a word for it. Disobedience. This is like clear disobedience on multiple levels. Okay? Yes? I think it's interesting um, as a comparison to now, because I think statistics show a higher percentage of men who are um, the adulterers in relationships, and yet at this time it was Eve who was tempted to, you know, be enticed by the sin hmm. that fell. And now it's kind of like, well, it's really men, typically, stereotypically, who are the ones that are more easily tempted by their fleshly desires and commit adultery. Yeah. That actually is stereotypical and not necessarily statistically true. Hmm. But I would say that is our perception of men. Mm-hmm. That I think that's accurate. But for whatever reason... In this story, it's Eve, right? So then, then immediately after eating of the fruit, they notice that they're naked and they are ashamed. Okay? So something, something really bad happens here. There is a brokenness that enters into the world through disobedience that is forever needing to be rectified. Oh, I, I think you are right on the money to point that out, that he's passively sitting there watching this unfold. And then what does he do when God comes strolling through the garden? He says, it's her fault. That's, well, that's true. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's it, 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 almost blaming God, right? But this woman that you gave me caused this to happen. So there's two clear things that happen here. Shame enters in. And what's the other one? They rhyme. Shame and blame. That's right. These are the two core things that we see happen as a result of this fall and disobedience. Now you're probably like, why are we talking about this in a class on God's purpose for sex? This is super important. Because they start out, God's design for them is to be naked and unashamed. You need somebody, Josh? Ethan? Your name's going to be on the podcast now. (laughs) Uh, So, God's design is for them to be naked and unashamed. Like children who are untethered to the pain of the world. And they end up being naked and hiding. And we are still doing that today. We're still hiding. We're hiding from each other. And most importantly, we hide in our marriages. And God's purpose for us is to stop hiding. A marriage is a place where we begin the process of pulling back the layers and entering into each other's pain and being there with each other in our shame, naked and, and unashamed, if we can be, right? Like that is, that's what God's wanting us to work back towards. That's what Christ's redemption was, was intended to do, was to repair those broken places in us, to fill us and to, and to take away those things in us that cause shame. And when we hide, we allow those things to continue to control. And usually 
we hide by being disobedient, right? Okay, so um, there's a lot of givens there, but there are, we can come back to it if we need to. So I want you to fast forward to, um, to, to the New Testament, turn to Matthew, um, Matthew 4 for me. All right, so it says, uh, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Imagine that. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, and he quotes scripture here, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. They said to him, away from me. He said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. What what happens here? First, the devil says to Jesus who is hungry, take these stones and turn them into bread. Now, this is reminiscent of the garden. He's saying, fulfill your, satisfy your hunger. And Jesus says, this will never fully satisfy me. I'm not going to satisfy myself with something that won't sustain me. I'm going to satisfy myself with God. Okay? That's the number one. So, Eve notices that the food, that, that the apple is good and pleasing to the eye, right? The lust of the flesh. Jesus says, I know it'll never satisfy me. So, then. We move on to uh, verse 6. And Satan takes him to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself off. Now, who would have been at the temple? Priests. What's that? Priests. Priests, Pharisees, teachers of the law, maybe the high priest. If Jesus had thrown himself off the temple... And all these angels would have caught him in front of these people. What would it have done? They would have immediately known who he was. It would have validated him and all the claims that he made. But he knew that God had ordered his steps differently. In his dependence on God the Father, he knew that that was not the plan. And he did not jump in order to validate himself as the Son of God, as the Messiah. It would have been that easy. That's why it was a temptation. Don't you think, you know, Jesus walking around in all these small towns telling people about the kingdom of God, how much easier it would have been if he would have just jumped off the temple and all these people would have said, yes, he is the Son of God. It would have made his life a lot easier. But he said, no, this is not the road that God has for me to walk. I'm not going to put God to the test. It's up to him to validate me as he chooses, right? Then the final thing, takes him up to a really high place and he says, you can have all the kingdoms of the world, which were rightfully Jesus's. He says, you can have all of this. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Now, he says, Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. He's told, he tells one other person that. Who is it? Peter. Peter. Why does he tell Peter that? 
Why do you say it to Peter? He wants to change his course. He wants to change his steps and direction. Yeah, he, he says it right after Peter says, you don't have to die. Yeah, he's telling him, he, Jesus saying, I have to die. That's the plan. And Peter says, you don't have to die. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You go to the garden and Jesus knows he's about to go to his death and he is sweating blood. It's actually possible for that to happen. Somebody can be so physically distraught and emotionally distraught, they can, their capillaries can burst and they can sweat blood. So, why is that? Because Jesus knows what's at stake if he goes to the cross, if he dies. Satan is giving Jesus an out. He's saying, I will give you what's rightfully yours, the kingdoms of this world, if you'll just worship me and you won't have to die. You won't have to do the very thing that you're afraid of doing. But Jesus says, no. Get away from me, Satan. He's doing that because he's walking in obedience to the Father, right? So in the fall, we see disobedience separate. And in Jesus' relationship with the Father, we see obedience and submission bring them back together, bring them in complete unity. In fact, what does Jesus say about his relationship with the Father? He says, the Father and I are, we're one, right? In fact, he prays for his disciples that they will be one as he and the Father are one. Obviously, there's something to this idea of oneness in Scripture. There's something to God's desire for people to be unified. And Jesus comes and he shows us the reverse of what the garden did by facing the temptation differently and, and walking through it in obedience and submission. Okay? Are y'all with me? Everybody tracking with me? Okay. So, this is the same type of oneness that God calls us to in marriage. If you look at um, several different places, but if you, if you look at different points in Scripture where Paul talks about um, marriage, what does he say? He talks about something specifically. Wives, submit, submit to your husbands. And he says, husbands love your wives, but there's an, there is an uh, implication of submission in that as well. What's that? Yes. Out of, yes, out of reverence for Christ. That's right. So both are, it's a mutual submission paradigm. This is the kind of submission that he's talking about. The type of love that says, I... Am, I am choosing to be in the presence of God. I'm choosing to be to allow Him to redeem the broken places of me, to bring me towards a place of wholeness, so that I can offer that to you in our oneness. The transformation that Christ brings through redemption. as it indwells us, as it fills us up, as we peel back the layers and He heals the places of shame in us, that allows us to enter into our marital relationship naked and unashamed and to have the oneness that we seek. I think that that wholeness is uh, wholeness and oneness are they 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 mutually feed one another, right? 
as we are in our marriages and we're accepted more and more by the, by the person, despite our brokenness, we become more whole. And as we're accepted by God, we become more whole and we are able to be more one, right? There is a mutual, it's mutually influencing. So I want you to turn to, um, let's go to Ephesians 5. This is what we were just talking about. We'll go to verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the, of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You know, I think we've talked about how sex has been so eroticized. You know, and I... I know that we've kind of gone to, uh, you know, such a different extreme of like spiritually what God intends for marriage and sex plays a role in bringing people into that place of oneness and wholeness. Like sex is the avenue by which people physically and spiritually come together to experience that. I want you to recognize that though I I see some like blurred stares at me right now, I want you to recognize the difference in how those two things feel. On the one hand, you have pornography, this eroticized pleasure seeking, or even just sex out of the context of marriage, just conquests of men and women trying to have as much sex as they possibly can, right? 21 ways to have a, an awesome orgasm, you know, like there's that. And then there's this, this idea of what God created for us to experience with another human being, to know and to be known. And how different those two ideas are. So that in this context, pleasure is the benefit, not the purpose. Right? It, it, it's something that we, we get to experience, but what we're seeking is the depth of oneness and the wholeness that comes with that. That's a completely different paradigm. And one that... I think if we were able to really communicate to to our children as they grow up to like, this is the ideal, right? Like this is what you're seeking and to be excited about that and to pursue it rather than, I don't really want to talk about it, but I know that's what people are going to tell you. This is what it's about. This is so cheap. It's so cheap and so empty. And yet this is so fulfilling and so rich. And it's beautiful. And it doesn't matter if there's 10 orgasms or no orgasms. What matters is that two people come together in a way that honors God in a way that is almost like worship, right? That might be hard for some people, given the baggage that they bring to the idea of sex, to to hear. But this is something that God created that mirrors His relationship 
with the Holy Spirit and with Christ. The oneness is is what we get to experience, okay? So, open up to um, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs 4. Twelve, starting in verse 12. And if you think this is not talking about sex, then um, we can talk afterward. But uh, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, With every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden, and its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I think the walls are sweating. Right? I mean... This is a description of Solomon and his lover. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots of debates on who exactly Solomon is speaking to. We're not going to get into that now. But this is not sexually explicit in the sense that it's like just about pleasure and erotic engagement. This is about like Solomon's expression of how much he adores this intimacy that he experiences with his lover. Now, we're not going to get into the fact that he had like 900 concubines and all of that, right? This is intended to focus on what it's like to really really celebrate another person, to be thankful for and appreciate the beauty of who they are and the uniqueness of who they are and to not expect or even want them to be something else that is a fantasy that has nothing to do with reality, right? This is like, I love you. You are it. You are what I want. That's beautiful and that's what we all need, right? We need to be valued. I think a lot of what you're talking about is the emotional aspect, you know, the oneness. I think we really, you know, there is a physiological aspect to that too. Yes. Uh, obviously with sex. Um, and Paul kind of addresses that in 1 Corinthians 7 when he talks about, you know, your body's not your own, the, the husband and the wife is not her own. But it's interesting that he comes together at the end of that and says, you know, come together so that you will not be tempted mm-hmm. uh, by Satan. So, you know, he's in there tempting us. I think a healthy sex life with your spouse is much more likely to keep you from doing things that you shouldn't be doing or looking at things you shouldn't be doing. I think you're right. I mean, that's, but there is a def- I mean, you were talking about, you know, a couple of weeks ago or last week about, uh, was it hysteria? The, yeah. You know, I mean, there was a phys- physiological aspect to that. Sure. You know, the, the cure for that, as you talked about, was, you know, I won't get into that, but... Um, so there's, there's a lot of physical side of that, too, that we need. The, the oneness is emotional, but, but it's also, you know, uh, physically getting rid of, in a, you know, yeah. stress and things like that. Of course, yes. I think you're right on. And, and I think the, the physical is the way to the emotional. You know, it's like, it's like the vehicle to get there. And it, it is a need. It's a driving force, you know. And Paul talks about that in, in the sense that, like, that's a, that, that might even be a lesser ideal than what we're talking about now, right? Like, don't just do it just for the oneness, but sometimes you need to do it just so you can keep each other from, from falling into temptation. And I, I think that is still has a servant nature to it, right? There's still this idea of, I want to serve you. I want to care for you in your needs, whatever those might be. And that comes from a place of oneness to be aware of 
your spouse's needs and communication and all of that. There's so much that flows out of it. But I think you're right. There is a physical aspect. Did you, were you raising your hand? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> okay. So. Um, I mean, you have given me two choices here. One is unfulfilling. One fulfills. But one takes work, and it takes me putting my my self uh, my selfish desires away. And the other one is just easy. Yes. And it's and it's self fulfilling, and it and and I can get everything I want, as much as I want, whenever I want. Even though it doesn't fulfill long term, it's just easy. It takes no work, and that's that's the battle. That's right. And I and I think that's the battle with every sin. Right. Every sin you're faced with: Am I going to choose what I want, or am I going to choose what God wants? That's right. And what God wants requires me to be um, obedient, and it requires work. Yes. And and it and it it results in something much greater. But it's just not as easy. Yeah. And I think where we struggle sometimes is that we are quick to be wounded and retreat versus being able to be vulnerable and express, like, what are our needs? Like, I think that's the real hard work, you know, to say, to be able to say, you know, look, like, I'm dying here. Like, I don't want this but it's a temptation for me I want this like I want to have this and here's what I need to help us get there like those are really hard conversations to have but we have to work too to be hungry for this you know it's like you're right it's easy to reach out and grasp for what looks good But ultimately, this is really what we're hungry for. And when we can even start to scratch the surface of experiencing it, we'll want to come back for more. I think our struggle is we try to take this and somehow bring it over here, and it just doesn't fit. And then we we leave feeling disappointed. So... I got to let y'all go, but man, thank y'all for hanging with me and um, I've enjoyed getting to spend this time with y'all.